VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? And personally, I totally believe that as a species, if we don't colonize other planets, the duration of the human species is going to be curtailed dramatically. If we, if we can colonize other planets, we go from an additional lifespan of thousands of years or ten thousands of years to millions. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Sorry we're a tad late this week. A little bit of a scheduling snafu, but we have a grand episode for your delectation. On the program, we have David Cowan. He is a veteran OG investor at Bessemer Venture Partners. And we've brought him on for a few reasons. One, he is one of the very early people who bet on space, private space companies. Um, And if, you know, listeners of this pod will know, space is booming at the moment. There's lots of, there's tons of money going into this industry now. Lots of interesting things happening. We had um, Will Marshall from Planet on here recently. But Cowan uh, was one of those, one of the few people who bet on this and bet on it early back when it was an idea that most likely um, just looked like it was not going to work. It was just going to be a waste of money. This is a view that apparently most of his partners at the firm thought as well. But anyhow, this year, three of those companies he backed years ago have gone public together. They're worth nearly $10 billion. So we talk about kind of how and why he ended up getting involved in that world. But more broadly, we also discuss just a very weird business of venture capital, where your whole job is to seek out the most out there, ridiculous ideas, kind of the more ridiculous, the better, and then invest millions of dollars in them and hope for the best. I mean, like I said, Cowan has been at this longer than most. He's been doing it since 1992. So he's got some great war stories. And I also want to bend his ear about Silicon Valley and its role in the world, especially as work, you know, the kind of work from home explosion, especially for technical engineering type jobs has really just uh, gone crazy in the last year since the pandemic um, kind of changed everything in what that might mean for Silicon Valley and its place as kind of the center of the tech universe. And lastly, I want to talk to him about Bubble Proof, which if you don't know, it's a very clever mockumentary that he made a few years ago with some other folks from this world and it's really just quite refreshing send-up of Silicon Valley and just how ridiculous this place is so he acts in it he wrote it Um, it's very funny and very much on the nose uh, because as we discussed this is just a really bizarre place 
in a bizarre moment in history. And few people are better placed to put it all into context and do so with a smirk than Cowan. So we cover all of that and more. So I will now hand it over to my conversation with David Cowan of Bessemer Venture Partners. Enjoy. As a starter, I thought it would be worth kind of just laying out. I was on your guys' website and I was looking at your anti-portfolio. And it feels like a decade ago, there's, you know, investing in space or even a few years ago, investing in space just seemed like something that most people wouldn't do. Most people weren't doing. And I thought it was just interesting that you guys have created this page, your anti-portfolio. And I think it lays out very nicely kind of the job you guys do and some of the kind of leaps that you're making when you're investing in companies. So could you could briefly explain what the anti-portfolio is and why you guys have put it up, and then we can get into kind of more of what's been happening recently. So the anti-portfolio is something we put up actually in 1999, and we did it because, like today, the tech industry was on fire, and venture firms were competing to be the investors that entrepreneurs want to work with. So you put this up in 99, like when things were still yeah, crazy. Yeah, things were crazy. Pre-bust. Pre and there were venture firms were flying entrepreneurs around on their private jets and and trying to convince them that, <laughs> that they were masters of the universe, these venture firms, and that it was the venture firm that makes the company successful. And we found that kind of distasteful. At Bessemer, we think we play a critical role in the ecosystem but we wanted entrepreneurs to know that we're human beings and we make mistakes and we do the best we can, but we view ourselves as partners, even supporters, but we just found that distasteful. And so we decided to go the other way and say, look, we don't know everything and we do make mistakes. And if you come and pitch us and we say, no, it doesn't mean you're not going to be successful. It just means maybe we didn't get it. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't feel discouraged. Yeah. And so we put it up on somewhat of a whim. I mean, it was kind of a flaky thing to do. I'll tell you that most of my partners thought it was a terrible idea. They said, why would you do that? It makes us look really stupid. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I said, sometimes we are yeah. a little stupid. Humility is not an often used currency out here. Right. So fortunately, my, my mentor, Felda Hardiman, who has mentored most of my partners at the time, he said, this is a good idea. We should do it. And ever since then, entrepreneurs have come to us and said, very often, even still today, you know, I'm coming to you because I really like your anti portfolio and what it says about Bessemer. And so uh, every once in a while, we refresh it with some of the real whoppers of mistakes that we've made. <laughs> and we've made, you know, if you go to look at the anti portfolio page, you could see, you know, huge whoppers there, just terrible, terrible lapses of judgment. Can you talk about your biggest whopper? The, my biggest whopper was passing on, on Google early on when they were still two students in a garage. So that was really, really early. Did you actually meet them or you're just like, no, this sounds like not a great idea? Well, so they were renting a garage from a dear friend of mine and I was visiting her and we were- Was that Susan Wojcicki? Yeah. And we were hanging out and she said, oh, yeah. there's this startup in my garage. These two students, they're really smart. You should talk to them. And I was arrogant and I thought, yeah, what are the odds that like, you would have two people in your garage that I would want to really speak to. And, but I said, what, I said, what do they do? She said, oh, they're making a search engine. And at the time, Alta Vista, Northern Lights, Yahoo, they all had search engines and they were all equally bad. Yep. And I said, well, who are these people? She said, they're students. I was like, 
okay, is there some way that I can get out of this house without going through your garage? And because I just like, I'm, <laughs> I'm here to hang out with you. And I like, this doesn't sound like a, like a worthwhile meeting. Yeah. And so it was certainly lack of imagination. It was arrogance. It was, you know, I, I learned a lot of things looking back on that. And one of the reasons we do the anti-portfolio is for us to reflect on what our mistakes were and to record them and to face them yeah. and to say, okay, let's make sure tomorrow we do a little better. Right. And as you, uh, as you mentioned, uh, when we started talking, I mean, things are crazy right now. And I think it was just this week that Sequoia said they're changing their whole setup in terms of how long they're going to hold these investments and changing into an investment advisor and all of these things. Basically, acknowledging kind of venture isn't what it used to be. There's a lot of, I mean, unicorn now is like this term that's like kind of passe. It's like if you're not a unicorn, what are you? <laughs> but it does feel like the scale of things has reached an entirely new level. Is that just from your perspective? Is it because 5 billion of us now have a smart supercomputer? And so it's just really easy to scale big ideas in a way that it wasn't before. Why do they seem to be accelerating at such greater pace than they were, you know, back in the day or even five years ago? That's a really good question. I think it evokes the thesis that Ray Kurzweil had when he talks about the singularity, which is don't focus on the singularity part, focus on the exponential <laughs> uh, exponential rate of innovation. And, and his basic point yeah. is that the more technology we have, the more able we are to create more technology. And so mm. if you look at a startup today and how that startup can get an application into the hands of people, just all the tools that they have, all of the APIs that are available to them out there so that they can have instant mapping and instant payments and instant email communications and instant messaging. And it's like, yeah. they just fold all that into their application and in a week, you know, they can build something pretty interesting. So technology itself accelerates technology. And we're the beneficiaries mm. of that. Yeah, we had a lady on last year, and she was in the early first dot com wave. And she said it cost her something like $2 million just to get a, a simple, very rudimentary e commerce website up in 1999. And now you have AWS and Stripe and Twilio. Twilio was on, uh, Jeff Lawson yeah. was on last week. Talking about all these, as you say, these kind of pick and shovel companies that, you know, for a pretty small amount of money, you have a company just like Presto Changeo. Yeah. I mean, about five years ago or so, I mapped out the cost of rolling out an e-commerce app. And I did map it from the late 90s. And it definitely followed the Moore's Law curve. Every 18 months, it cost half as much mm. to put out an e-commerce app. And at some point, it didn't even make sense to even map it anymore because it's almost instant today. Yeah. So... Speaking of technology enabling other technologies, space, the great beyond, we had Will Marshall from Planet. Uh, we've had him on, he was on a couple weeks ago, but we've had him on this podcast twice. He was one of my first guests like four years ago when it was still like, that's kind of an interesting idea, but I don't really know what you guys are doing like as a business. And now that company is bringing in $125 million a year selling data from its constellation of satellites. You have had a good year in space, so to speak. You got th what, three companies you've invested in have gone public this year? That's right, in space, yeah. Can you talk about which company you bet on first and why? Because it does feel, I mean, just the idea of right. space feels, pardon the pun, out there. 
Um, but what is happening there and why, cause you know, sometimes I'll talk to my wife about this. I'm like, there's some really interesting stuff going on in space. She's like, cool. Kind of like, it was like, who cares? Why does it matter? What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? But I think it is interesting what's happening. But if you could talk about kind of when you first got involved, what you saw and what's happening now and why we should care. So a lot of questions there. <laughs> well, let me start with what it has to do with the price of tea in China. The price of tea in China is yeah. a function of the health of the crops. And the health of the crops is something that satellites now monitor and provide early warning signals whenever they're too wet or too dry or there's sickness in the crops. And so farmers are actually one of the first beneficiaries of Earth observation constellations. Mm. And so the answer is it probably brings down the price of tea in China. That, that's the answer to your wife. You could tell her that. That's what space does. And, and I, right. I, think she, I think the question, though, touches on a very important distinction between space activities as we grew up thinking about them, which were focused on science and exploration. Whereas we, when we talk about the space economy today, a large part of that is what I refer to as commercial space, which means we're doing things in space that create products that we sell to people on Earth who are not space companies, who are actually doing things with it that are valuable on the planet. By the way, I grew up thinking I might be an astronomer. I loved space and I loved thinking about science and exploration. And, and personally, I totally believe that as a species, if we don't colonize other planets, the duration of the human species is going to be curtailed dramatically. If we, if we can colonize other planets, we go from right. you know uh, an additional lifespan of thousands of years or 10,000s of years to millions. And so it's it's something that is an imperative for the species. So you are in the school of uh, Jeff Bezos. I've I've seen his talk about we either face rationing here on Earth because we're running out of room and resources, or we go into the cosmos. We end up being a trillion people, and then Earth becomes kind of like a tourist destination or a nice place to hang out, and all the industry moves out to space, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of yeah. It's indisputable. I mean, there's... Indisputable. I mean, we know there are so many existential threats here on this planet. We know that every other yes. dominant species on the planet has always succumbed to those existential threats. And we've created new existential threats that none of them faced using our technology. Whereas if we can colonize other planets, then I don't know of any existential threats that span planets. So I don't know how to dispute it. Yeah. It's very compelling. And that's, of course, a big part of Jeff's mission. It's a big part of Elon Musk's mission, which is great. And certainly along the way, as they are pursuing those missions, they're developing technologies that are useful to us in other ways. As a venture investor, I can't tell my limited partners that we're going to go colonize a planet to save humanity <laughs> uh, so that we can colonize the galaxy. That'll be a 100x right? return, uh, I promise. Because there's no way to, yeah, there's no way to create any kind of financial return within the lifetime of our fund. However, what is really exciting now is a retooling of space using microsatellites that makes space commercially far more valuable. And so it seems almost trivial. Well, of course, computers get smaller. We know that. They've always gotten smaller, more powerful. Well, in the space industry for 50 years, they didn't. It actually went the other way. Yeah. What happened for 50 years following the Apollo missions is that People said, gee, putting these computers up in space is really difficult, so we can't go fix them once they're up there. And so we better make sure that we make yeah, them yeah. more redundant and more redundant, and we use exotic parts that, are, that can withstand radiation. 
And so now they're even more expensive. Yeah. So we have to make them even more redundant and we have to make them last longer. And so space went the other way, whereas the world was going towards smaller, cheaper, better, faster, they were going towards bigger, 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 more expensive. And by the turn of the century, we were putting up satellites that weighed tons and cost billions of dollars. And it took 12 years to build and launch them, and they would have design lives of 30 years. And so if you look at what's in geosynchronous orbit today, most of that stuff is based upon technology from the 1980s or the 1970s even. It's like a constellation of like VCRs. And now we're sending up smartphones. And so when the internet came along and suddenly communications became free, all of those monsters no longer had an economic model and all the satellite companies went bankrupt. And so everybody thought, okay, commercial space is dead. And then we started to see entrepreneurs and students and billionaires and people finding ways to put things into space. And the real, I think the real kind of unsung heroes here are the students at Cal Poly and Stanford, who in the early 2000s, they were trying to put up these sensors into space. And they realized that the cell phones they were carrying, which were brand new, they had these parts that were the parts of a satellite. They had batteries and radios and cameras and accelerometers. And they said, oh, this is what we need for for a satellite. So they said, can we make a satellite out of cell phone parts? Yeah. And they said, we can. And in order to facilitate collaboration among the students, they established this CubeSat standard, which was just basically a, a geometric specification that says, that says, if you make a 10 by 10 card, we can slide it into this chassis. It's really just a chassis. And so we, we're all going to design 10 by 10 cards and share them. And this like hobbyist movement sprung up around these CubeSats. So in 2010, some students came to me from Stanford and they said, you know, everyone's playing around with these little CubeSats. We think that this, we could do something commercial with microsats. We think that we can actually compete with the old space companies, but doing it with these little CubeSats. Yeah. And um, certainly for me as a venture investor, one who had been investing in cloud and cybersecurity and areas like that, this was not something that I was really qualified to assess, but I hired consultants to from the space industry to look at this. Mm. And when I told them that these students at Stanford wanted to build a commercial constellation of imagers, they said, that's really dumb. You can't do that. Space is hard. Leave it to the big boys. Yeah. Like internet boy, go back to your fluffy venture investments. And I said, yeah, you're right. But you know what? I'm going to pay you. Just go check it out. And so these consultants went and they checked it out and they both came back independently and said, wow, I can't figure out why this isn't going to work. So these students, mm. they, you know, Dan Birkenstock and his friends from Stanford, they said, we're going to use open source software and we're going to use cell phone parts and we're going to, you know, just make something really cheap and small. And therefore, it's going to be much cheaper to launch. And we can build an imager and launch it for $10 million, which was crazy because Digital Globe is doing it for a billion dollars per imager. So I think my partners at the time thought it was a really bad idea but they indulged me. So can we just pause that? Why? Is it because obviously you've been, you, so you've been doing this now for what, 30 years-ish? Yeah, yeah. Is it just like, okay, we kind of trust your nose basically? Because to your point around, you know, the anti-portfolio and Google, again, a couple Stanford students with like an idea that sounds either dumb or uninteresting or hopeless. You're like, well, you know, 
is it was that kind of echoing in your brain or like you know what is that meeting like where you're like no 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 we're going to give millions of dollars to some students to like take on space which as you say at the time was costing established companies a billion dollars to send up a single thing yeah so you know bessemer's been around for over 100 years and so we pride ourselves on being long-term thinkers and i kind of tapped into that uh sentiment <laughs> and like i said i think my partners were indulging me they almost thought of it as like a cost of doing business maybe for having me <laughs> you know making the other investments i'm making oh there goes cowan again yeah oh, so <laughs> so uh so and, and by the way to like to some extent i told them at the time this is probably not going to work we're probably going to lose all our money and that's what i believed and we had a very difficult time raising money from other other venture investors. Mm. I think it's telling that the only investors who did step up and invest were uh, Deepak Camera and Promote Hawk, and those were you know multi-decade investors from their firms. And so I think it mm. it takes somebody who's been around long enough to say, I just want to do this. I think this might work um, because somebody yeah. somebody earlier in one's career would think this is crazy, and and when it doesn't work, I'm it's People will say that was obvious. So in December 2013, Skybox Imaging sent down. They, they had you know first light, which is means the the first picture that it sent down. Yeah. And it was this glorious multicolored high res image of an airport in France, and it was just wonderful. And I think that day the industry's jaw dropped because they said, "Wow, we didn't think these students would do anything." And here they are, and they're delivering images every bit as as beautiful as the as the product that people are buying from Digital Globe. And anybody at that point who was thinking about building in the old model said, "Okay, we have to rethink this." And that was the first successful mm. commercial constellation based on microsats. We sold that company to Google at a time when Google thought that it was going to build basically one web. Right. Yeah. Because Greg yeah. Wilder was there and he was saying, we're going to do this at Google. And so it was really kind of like a really big aqua hire for that project. And yeah. at some point the founders from of Google said, you know, this is going to cost like the costs keep going up. And at the time it's like they said, we feel like this isn't going to happen on the time and budget you told us and we don't want to do it anymore. And so Greg left. And at that point Skybox was kind of a, an orphaned business unit inside of Google. Mm. Uh, and so Google decided to sell it. And I think Planet was very, very shrewd in jumping on that and buying the company from Google. So the first one that I invested in after Skybox was Rocket Lab, because as a Skybox investor, I could see that the hardest thing about deploying the Constellation was actually launched. Yeah. Is that de developing the satellites in itself was not like we did it, you know, using the technology we thought, but it's really hard to put up a constellation of small satellites if all you have are enormous rockets. Yeah, yeah. Enormous rockets are great for putting up enormous satellites, but if you're trying to put up small ones in lots of different places and you need to do it quickly. Yeah, yeah. You can't yeah. order a rocket 5 years from now for a satellite that's only got a design of two years. to be two to three years, yeah. right? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And you don't want to put, and if you have a big rocket, you don't want to put all your satellites in one place. You want them phased in orbit. And you also don't want to spend all your capital up front. I mean, part of the model in space is you put up satellites and then you replenish and expand the constellations. So Rocket Lab was aiming to fix that problem. And they, they thought of doing it because that was Elon's original business model. 
He was building the- For SpaceX. For SpaceX. Falcon 1 was meant to be a small payload delivery vehicle. Mm. And when he got to space, NASA came along and said, wow, you're able to build rockets and go to space. We built something bigger and go to the space station for us. And Elon said, okay. And he scrapped the Falcon 1 and he went for Falcon 9 because that was going to accelerate his mission to Mars, which was his real mission. And so at that time, Rocket Lab said, well, if Elon's not going to do it, we're going to do it. And so they designed the very first electric hybrid rocket engine. So the Mm. Rocket Lab engine runs on batteries. (laughs) Wow. And they developed the world's, what's today still the world's only private space launch range on the Maha Peninsula in northern New Zealand. And then they, um, you know, started developing the Electron rocket. And so I looked around at the time and there were a few groups focused on this mission, including a Firefly, which had spun out from from SpaceX when the Falcon 1 was was killed. Mm. But I loved Rocket Lab because they were just making progress. And I loved Peter Beck. And I, I just, yeah. I, I, and they had attracted this really vibrant team of young people from around the world who moved to Auckland to make this happen. Oh, interesting. And so we bet on we bet on Rocket Lab. What year was that? I think 2015. Right. And they went public recently. Yeah, just just this year. Right. And then the next one was Spire Global. So Spire Global operates the world's largest multifunction CubeSat constellation in space. So mm. uh, they put up over 100 CubeSat satellites. They're about the size of a toaster, same size as the Dove that Planet puts up. Yeah, yeah. Planet, though, because they're doing imaging, they have to fill the satellite with glass. Spire is not doing any imaging. And so they've got the whole toaster full of other kinds of applications. And so it's that's why I'm saying it's a multifunction constellation. So right. we have different antennas that listen for different things on Earth, but we track uh, ships using AIS signals. We track planes using ADSB. We collect more weather data than anyone else in the world. Mm. We've actually built our own meteorological team that now can predict the weather with more precision than any government on Earth today. Oh. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And who's buying that data? So the whole weather industry is going through a, a shift from kind of free government data to commercial yeah. data. And so sometimes it's actually the governments themselves who no longer have space assets. And then sometimes it's, you know, logistics companies, agricultural companies like Monsanto. It turns out that weather was already a very large industry People were spending a lot of money on right. it. They were they were getting a lot of the data for free, which is no longer going to be available, or, or at least to the extent it is available, it's not as accurate as ours. So basically, weather weather is being privatized. Yes, weather is being privatized. Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and that I mean that is by far the big opportunity that Spire Global is going after. Mm. Yes, we we have these other applications, but weather is the big one, especially with climate change. It's disrupting so many industries. It's just becoming more of a factor in everyday business, including you know the price of tea in China. Yeah. So um, and then the the other company, uh, actually we invested in before Spire is a company called Velo 3D. I heard about this from Peter Beck at Rocket Lab because Peter was already 3D printing his rocket engines, and he said, uh, yes, and he yes, said, yes. oh, there's the startup that's doing like the it's doing the holy grail of 3D metal printing. It would be our dream to have one of those printers that they're building. So I went to talk to this guy, Benny Buller, who was building a 3D metal printer that, unlike all the others, could actually build not just up, but could also go to the side. And what that meant is that it could print any geometry, and it doesn't need supports to hold up the parts that are hangovers. Supports in a metal part are untenable. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about filing away a titanium support, sometimes one that's inside your part right? Because if you have yeah, a yeah, chamber inside. Yeah. And everybody thought that what Velo was doing was impossible. I mean, people just thought that supports were just a fundamental property of laser sintering. And so Benny and his team, they actually didn't know how they were going to do it. They just said, we're just going to do it and we're going to figure it out. Right. And it took a while. <laughs> it took twice as long and twice as much money as they thought, but, yeah. they, but they cracked the code. And, and today, you know, they sell the most advanced 3D metal printer and almost every rocket engine manufacturer, the new generation of rocket engine manufacturers are, are using them now to print their parts. Wow. Yeah. So those are, those are some of the investments we've been involved in. Yeah. So I think venture capital is such a weird business because you're kind of betting on the ridiculous or betting on the impossible. So for people who listen to this podcast, who may there, we have a lot of like, obviously techie type listeners, people who are starting their own businesses or running their own businesses, what's the mental model? I mean, is it just, you like the pitch, you like the person? I mean, what kind of pushes you over the line or what are the two or three or four things that you look for when I imagine you're getting just ridiculous off the wall ideas every day? Yeah. So in a way, they have to be really off the wall. I mean, they have to be not not in terms of just the difficulty of doing them, but the way in which they would change our lives. Yeah. So 
there really has to be a connection to the price of tea in China. There has to be something about it that is going to propel us into what we thought was science fiction. Right. So it's really, really hard to do market sizing for markets that don't exist yet. Yeah. Well, that's why, like, when you see a deck and you're like, this is a 80 bajillion dollar market, you're like, is it? Yeah. And so, in a way, <laughs> I'm kind of sloppy about it. I'm kind of like almost lazy because to me, if I have to try to get the research and do the math on the market sizing, that's going to take a while. I don't know if I'm going to do it right. Who knows? It has mm. to be obvious. It has to be just yeah. so obvious that if you could do that, if you can do that, then of yeah, yeah. course, of course, that's going to change everything. And everybody, like, it, you're going right. to have a, a, an enormous company. So I, it has to be something where I don't believe there's really market risk. Like, the, I mean, for the 3D metal printing, there's an $800 billion annual market for metal parts. And if we right. can, at least 10% of those parts are parts that should be printed and not machined. And so that's $80 billion of metal parts a year that should be printed. And if we have if we have the best product for doing it, I don't have to do a spreadsheet yeah. to convince, like I, it's, I just know it's gonna be a successful investment if we can do it. So it has to just be you know, obvious that, it's a norm, that there's an enormous market there. That's for deep tech investing. Obviously, yeah. most venture capital is not deep tech. Most venture capital no. is investing in software. In software Areas where there really isn't technology risk, you know, if you hire good engineers, you're going to build it. And, you know, the risks are much more around finding product market fit and building good go to market execution and, you know, understanding market size and those kinds of things. So that's most of venture capital. I'm just talking about what I love doing, which is deep tech. Right. And can you talk about, you know, you're a, um, and I say this with respect to kind of a gray beard in the industry, you've been doing this longer than most. Yeah. Where we are in 2021, where, you know, like I was saying at the top, just the valuations, the the rate of growth, also the level of hype, the amount of money sloshing around. It's kind of hard to get your head around when you're kind of covering this stuff week in, week out. And I imagine if you're seeing companies week in, week out, what this looks like relative to what you guys were doing in, let's say, the first dot-com bubble and kind of are we primed for a fall? Because also we're kind of get, entering this period of it seems like hyperinflation. There's just money. Money is everywhere. Assets are going through the roof. I mean, just look at Silicon Valley or Bay Area real estate prices. It's very, very hard to understand what's real and what isn't, what has staying power, you know, kind of is this time different, so to speak. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. And in some ways, being a gray beard has been a disadvantage. You might think, oh, you've seen the cycles and you know. Yeah, you, you've seen, you've it, seen all. it all. Yes. And in a way, that's held me back. It's held back a lot of people who, who live through the cycles. And mm. what happens is I get kind of anchored in old numbers. I think right. I think a billion dollars is the price at which you sell a company as fast as you can, <laughs> right? And, and, and whereas yes. a lot of venture investors think, okay, that's just a pre-money. That's like, that's a Series C pre-money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I have a hard time recalibrating to that. And it has cost me some good investment opportunities. And you could say, well, but wait a minute, maybe the answer is that pre-money shouldn't be a billion dollars. And the answer is that 
sometimes they should, because as you pointed out earlier, the overall technology market is expanding. The value of yeah. companies is expanding the, because of the number of users and the amount of usage and, and the amount of commerce that's now shifting over to these platforms. And so, yes, the value of these companies is expanding. And those of us who have been doing this for a while are sometimes the last ones to readjust to that reality. Mm. Now, your other question is, you know, is there a bubble? Are we going to yeah. are we going to you know, suffer? And I think that clearly there's a lot of money going in to a lot of companies at crazy prices and there it's not going to pan out for investors. And I think that there's a high correlation between those failures and investors who are simply kind of distant, less connected to the industry. And so most importantly, retail investors in the stock market. Retail investors in the stock market have a very difficult time really assessing what's underneath the hood. And in this wave of SPACs that we saw, yeah, there, yeah. there are some excellent companies and some companies who you know, have been able to take advantage of this financing vehicle to accelerate their missions in a very legitimate way. But there are also others who went to the public markets Sometimes because nobody in the private markets would give them any money because in the private markets, they are sophisticated and, you know, we have teams of people, professionals who assess these things and are able to dig in. And there are a lot of those companies. And so in many ways, the SPAC wave is going to mirror what happened in the 90s. In the 90s, we saw companies going, basically what we saw in the dot-com wave was companies going earlier companies going public very early, even before they had revenue. Yeah, yeah. And there was an appetite among the public to invest in technology early because they wanted that growth. And that's exactly what's fueling the SPAC wave, especially with interest rates really low. People are looking for growth. They're looking for alpha. And with tech companies priced really high at very high multiples, if we can invest in companies earlier, we can ride that very high growth wave. And so that's what's driving interest in, in SPACs. But, you know, many, many of the SPACs are going to disappoint. Yes. And there will be a backlash. There already is a backlash, just like there was in the dot-com wave. There'll be a, I've dubbed it the specopolis, which is kind of hard to say, but <laughs> I like it. The other thing I want to ask you about is what Silicon Valley looks like going forward. In Silicon Valley, I mean, you know, the tech industry broadly. I was looking at a reference to, within this past week, there's some survey on Hacker News and it was like percentage of new engineering jobs being offered like fully remote. And it was something it used to have been like 30% and now it's like 75, 80%. Yeah. And just like the kind of explosion of this idea that like everybody has to be in the same building every day and working together, et cetera. And obviously there's part of the magic of this place is that you have all of these brains in one kind of geographical location. And that just kind of creates this environment that is pretty unique. Um, do you see that this kind of upending of the work model really changing how Silicon Valley operates and or its primacy in kind of the tech universe? I think this shift towards remote workers is actually really good for Silicon Valley. Oh, hot take. Think back. <laughs> two years. Yeah. And everyone was complaining about how difficult it is to recruit people to Silicon Valley and how Silicon Valley is a grind because you can't buy a house because there's nowhere to, the, the office rents are going crazy. 
the highways are clogged, there aren't enough schools. It was this way overpopulated pressure cooker that was just really unpleasant. And that was our problem. And this is the solution. So if 30% of our workforce all moved away, yeah. we'd be back to where we were in 2007. I mean, it's not like this would become a ghost town. Yeah, it yeah. would just become a better town. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I actually think, I mean, I was more inclined to leave Silicon Valley two years ago than I am now. Yeah. So I think this is actually going to be really good for the region. Now, of course, it's also, it's also really good for other regions. This is not a, it's not a zero sum game. It's not like Silicon Valley loses somewhere else wins. This is a win for Silicon Valley. It's a win for other regions as well. Will Silicon Valley retain its primacy, as you call it? Yes, it will, because this is still the place where you can find the most exotic, precious technical skills. And I think for people who are super passionate about tech, this is the, still going to be the mecca. And, and so I think there's just a vibrancy here that you're not going to find in the town in Idaho where you go back to live with, you know, near your parents. I mean, yeah. it's just not going to be there. And so I think a lot of great companies will still emanate from Silicon Valley, but then expand. Right. Or even if, even if they start elsewhere, I just think that that companies in Silicon Valley are just going to have an advantage still. And so I'm not at all worried. Right. And then lastly, before I let you go, can we talk about bubble proof? Uh, please. <laughs> so, because, you know, I spent many moons in, in the UK, so I really appreciate sarcasm and, as the Brits would say, taking the piss out of themselves. And I feel like everybody here is super earnest and take themselves very seriously and think they are, you know, the smartest people on the planet and people don't get it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Bubble proof is actually quite entertaining. Thank you. And I would love for you to just explain what it is and why you did it. So Bubbleproof is a mockumentary series available at bubbleproof.tv. There are 10 episodes. Yes. Each one's about 10 minutes. So you could binge it tonight. And it's it follows the arc of a, an entrepreneur who turns venture capitalist. And this entrepreneur is a visionary guru who's hailed as someone that you just is a blank check entrepreneur that you just want to put your money in. I will say this is pre like WeWork implosion. Very WeWorky. Very WeWorky. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's kind of like HBO Silicon Valley, but HBO Silicon Valley is really very mainstream. And it, it's for, yeah. this is really more inside baseball and it more speaks to the tech yes. community, people who are involved in startups and tech. Because if you watch it, you kind of can't think, oh my God, that resonates with what I with what I've been through, and it is kind of cringy, like The Office. But it's also <laughs> it it also follows the model of curb your enthusiasm. If you've seen that, where we actually use yep. real people, real names, and it's a mix of real people and actors, and so you really do kind of feel like you're kind of seeing what really happens in the industry. And so, why did I do this? <laughs> I did this with my friend Michael Furtick, who's the founder of Reputation, and I did it because for one thing, it was great fun. Yeah. Michael is really creative and funny and we had a great director and we brought in actors from the San Francisco comedy scene. And it was really just probably, it was, it, it's the most fun thing I've ever done in my life was making bubble proof. Yeah. But the reason we did it is that we wanted to poke fun at the fear of missing out 
that grips Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. uh, and this idea that that somehow I missed something and my roommate made money and my sister made money and my college friends made money. And like that kid in, I was in fifth grade with somehow is now a billionaire. And like, yeah. how come I like I'm just being too analytical. I'm being too reasonable. I'm being too rational. I have to suspend my critical thinking and I just have to throw my my time and my money at whatever is hot. And even if I don't understand it, even if it doesn't make sense to me, if this looks like and it smells like, you know, a deca unicorn, then who am I to question it? And I should just yeah. I should just go in full bore. And and so it chronicles the sort of snowballing of momentum of how people just believe something because other people believe it. Yeah, and there's yeah, a few yeah. points in it where we kind of reveal that it's about Silicon Valley, but it's also about America following the election in 2016 and our view that basically the United States was conned by you know a charismatic person who promised things that could never be delivered just like you know Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos mm. and so it was a it was about Silicon Valley's mass delusion but it was also about America's mass delusion what is funny you do get that sense living out here it's kind of the way I think of it, it's almost like this kind of cosmic lottery and she's just like walking down the street, but hey, man, how are you? I haven't seen you for a while. Oh, yeah. We're, oh, 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 you have life-changing money? Normal person X? How did that happen? Why didn't that happen to me? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and it's it's a very bizarre, this is a weird, really bizarre, bizarre place yeah. that we live in. Because I've never, I've never been anywhere else where that happens so frequently where it's just kind of in the air. And as you say, there's like that, that FOMO is in the air and you can see it gain momentum like it did at WeWork, where you're just like, wait, isn't this just a, an office company? Right. And so we document sort of that pathology of fear of missing out. But then also what happens when people do make the life-changing money? Mm. And then what happens is often they get overcome by ego yeah, and it becomes competitive. Like, well, it's not enough for me to be able to pay all my bills and be able to have a, you know, a security for my family with good education and medicine and even yeah. nice vacations and cars. No, no, no. I have to have more than that other person has. Totally. And I have to show everybody that I'm better than they are. And so a lot of what Bubbleproof does, I mean, most of Bubbleproof really is just making fun of the egos and the vanities of the venture capitalists who are making financially poor decisions out of ego. And desire to show how cool and and brilliant and successful they are. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. in the in the series, yeah. I play myself, uh, who's one of these, <laughs> who's one of these, you know, super vain, ego driven yes. uh, venture investors. And you know, people tell me, "Wow, you were such a good actor in that series." And the reality is, it's not too far off from yeah. who we are, right? I mean, all VCs have to do is just let go of a little bit of inhibition, right? You know, and we are these uh, ridiculous creatures, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I encourage people to check it out. It's good fun. And especially if you're kind of in this world, it is, it is, it feels kind of on the nose. And I'm sure you have some, um, some good stories from over the years. Including people who don't know that it was a mockumentary. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. There are some people who think that Michael Furtick and I really are as ridiculous as the show 
portrays. Oh, that's amazing. Which, of course, when we run into those people, we totally lean into it, right? Yeah, as you should. <laughs> as you should. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank David for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening, rating, reviewing, etc. Um, you guys are the best around. Nothing's going to ever keep you down. Yeah. If you're still listening, that was one of the key songs in the original Karate Kid movie. So shout out to anybody who recognized that. Anyhow, I will be back next week with another pod. Please do check out, we're writing about Facebook this week, the metaverse, Mark Zuckerberg, all of that stuff and a lot more at thetimes.co.uk. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. That is it for this week. Have a fabulous weekend. Talk to you soon. Students, stay up to date on the stories that matter by getting a Times digital subscription for less than 8p a day. Receive six months free access to Perlego's online library of academic resources and tools and access to the extensive Times archive so you can always be the most informed and well-read person on campus. Subscribe today at thetimes.co.uk slash student. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.